Good evening, everyone. We're back in systematic theology again. We're continuing with session number 37. And in this portion, we're continuing to look at the subject of redemption. Since the fall of Adam in the Garden of Eden, mankind has been in a desperate situation due to (laughs) sin. We were spiritually dead in sin, made subject to physical death due to sin, and under the wrath of God to be revealed on the final day due to sin. Our great need is to be delivered from this situation. Other religions, they come up with false schemes for deliverance, to deliver themselves. But since we're spiritually dead and the dead can't do anything, we can't deliver ourselves. If we are to be delivered from sin, that deliverance has to come from outside of ourselves. God himself has brought that deliverance to his people. And we call that deliverance redemption. We use the word redemption in kind of a comprehensive way to refer to the work of God who intervened in our desperate situation when we could not, and indeed we didn't even have the will to do anything ourselves. To escape eternal punishment for our sins and to be brought to God as his people, we needed a redeemer. Now, redemption can be logically divided into two aspects. First, Christ accomplished redemption for us by what we referred to previously in previous studies as his active obedience and his passive obedience. In his active obedience, Christ kept the law perfectly throughout his earthly walk. And this active obedience was necessary so that Christ's righteousness could be accounted for us in a legal transaction. Then Christ obeyed in his suffering to the point of the shedding of blood, culminating in the cross, which took away the sins of his people. And this obedience is many times called Christ's passive obedience. We looked at two vocabulary words, propitiation and expiation. Those are aspects of Christ's work as our high priest. In propitiation, the wrath that was rightly due to us because of our sin has been turned away from us because Christ willingly took the wrath of God for us as our substitute. The wrath of God which is required by God's perfect justice that was poured out on our substitute, Christ at the cross. And the other vocabulary word was expiation. Expiation. That's the result of the work of Christ in that we are completely released from our sins. There are no more demands of God's justice upon his people, and there are no more sacrifices for sin. Our sins have been completely taken away, never to be remembered against us, never to be judged again. We also also looked at what constitutes perfect forgiveness, and you might forgive that. You might uh, remember that. It was the 17th century theologian Herman Witsius that taught about perfect forgiveness. And Witsius wrote of three elements to perfect forgiveness. The taking away of sin from us, the transferring of our sin to our substitute, Christ, and then the expiating of sin. And that's the complete removal of our sins. And this resolution of our sins by Christ, it's wonderfully expressed in Psalm 103. And I'll quote from verses 11 and 12. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. We've covered the work of our high priest, Christ, in accomplishing redemption for his people. Now, as we go forward, we're going to start on the application of redemption to his people. Christ accomplished redemption 2,000 years ago at the cross. And he continues to intercede for us as high priest in heaven today. But that accomplishment of redemption has to be applied individually to each person that God elected in eternity past to be among his people. Until that moment of application of redemption happens to someone, their mind is still captive to sin. Only once God applies redemption to someone does that person receive the benefits of redemption. When God applies salvation to one of his elect, at the time that he or she is brought into the kingdom of God, benefits that change us for our present life and for eternity, are poured out on us. But theologians have recognized that each of these benefits are tied to each other. And they don't just exist independently. The blessings of salvation come as a package. 
but they're tied together in a way that when we receive these benefits, there's a sequence to it. There are certain blessings that have to logically happen first before other blessings can be applied. Even when some of these benefits, they can be poured out on us at the same moment, there's a logical order to them. And to see this orderly sequence of blessing, we're going to turn first to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, if you'd like to follow along. And I'll read verses 28 to 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those who he, whom he predestined, he also called. And those, whom he also, and those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This passage, it lists several blessings of God toward those who will be saved. First, in verse 29, Paul speaks of God's foreknowledge of his people and his predestination of his people. That happened before the foundation of the world. So this predestination, God's predetermining of who he will save, comes before the blessings that come next. And then verse 30, it mentions the blessing of calling and justification next. And that happens at the time that redemption is applied to one of God's elect, that he already predestined this. And then finally, verse 30 mentions glorification, and that's a blessing that will be given to us on the final day. So there's an order to how God applies redemption to one of his elect. This is because God is a God of order, not a God of disorder. God doesn't do things in a higgledy-piggledy manner. There are names for the blessings of redemption, and theologians have also come up with an order to how these blessings are applied when a person is saved. Like so many things in theology, there's a fancy phrase for this order. The phrase for this is the ordo salutis, and that's just Latin for the order of salvation. Now, the ordo, ordo salutis, well, it's a result of interpreting several passages, not just one, but it describes a logical order to the application of the benefits of salvation. Now, some of these actions, they're separated by time, but some others are not. Some of God's actions in applying redemption to us all happen at the same instant. When there are actions that all occur at once in time, we can say there's a logical order to how one benefit must follow another. God is a God of order, not of disorder. Each of God's actions in applying redemption to one of his elect have their own place. Each action arises from what comes before, and each action has a certain result that follows. Each of these blessings in this ordo salutis are actions taken by God. We couldn't have climbed a ladder to get out of the pit of sin we were in. Spiritually dead people can't climb. We couldn't ascend to heaven to pull down the blessings of salvation. As we go through each blessing, we'll see that each one is a work of God's grace. Saved people are God's project. We'll turn next to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll read verses 8 to 10. Ephesians 2 verses 8 to 10. Now here, we're going to see who is the one who planned the project and who is taking the project to completion. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So verse 8 tells us that we didn't, we couldn't do anything to merit or earn the blessings of salvation that we've received. It's all by grace. If we had done any works that caused God to somehow take special notice of us, and God extended privilege to us based on our own works, then we could at least take a little credit for it. We could boast a little bit for our salvation. But verse 9 tells us that we cannot boast of any of the blessings of salvation. 
You know, it's interesting that this Greek word that's translated here, workmanship, the only other place it is used in the New Testament is in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. And I'll read that. It says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. In the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. And here in Romans, Paul is saying that people who are atheists, they don't have any excuse for being atheists. Deep down inside, they know or they should know that God exists because we are, in a sense, swimming in evidence for God. Paul points to the created world itself as evidence that is easily perceived and it can't be denied if one is honest with themselves. The wording here in Romans that's translated, the things that have been made. Here is where we run into that Greek word that in Ephesians is translated workmanship. The word here in Romans is used to describe God's physical creation, translated the things that have been made. The creation that he made in six days in the beginning. It's the same Greek word used in Ephesians to describe Christians as God's workmanship. There's a linkage here between Romans and Ephesians, and I don't think it's a coincidence. Just as God had a project of workmanship in the beginning that he accomplished in six days, he has a project of workmanship today. That workmanship, that new creation, it's us. This act of creation by God, when the benefits of salvation are poured out in one of God's elect, is such a powerful, divine action that Paul describes it as a new creation. Let's turn next to Galatians chapter 6, verse 15. Galatians 6, 15, it says, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. A new creation. In this portion of Galatians, Paul proves that what the false teachers wanted to do to circumcise Christians, to convert them to Judaism first, before they could be Christians, that's absolutely false. Paul had every outward advantage as a Jew and a Pharisee, but he had nothing to boast in. In verse 15, Paul states that these outward signs of Judaism, they can't truly save. They contribute nothing to our justification before God. Only a new creation can bring us to God. Only the great workmanship done by God, not by ourselves, can bring us to the blessings that salvation brings. I like what the 17th century Puritan, Dr. Ralph Cudworth, commented on this passage in Galatians. And I'll quote now from him. The conversion of a sinner is as great a work as the creation of heaven and earth. For Paul calls it here a new creation. Nay, here is a greater power required, if I may so speak, than that whereby the world was created. You know what? I agree with Cudworth on this point. The salvation of God's elect required the accomplishment of redemption by the willing sacrifice of God's Son on the cross. The application of redemption to each of us is a new creation, a new workmanship of God. And then Cudworth says again, Before our conversion, we are like the dry bones. For as when the wind of God came upon them, bone came to bone and were joined with sinews and covered with flesh and had their senses restored. Now as we begin to look at how God uses his power in applying salvation to his elect and the fact that there is a logical order and how God pours out these benefits to us. We should remember that all of this is God's workmanship. We are God's workmanship. As Christians, we are God's act of creation, God's project. So let's take an overall view of the order of salvation, this ordo salutis, before we begin to look at each of the parts of this order. And you have them here in your notes. Now, different theologians do differ slightly on what benefits they list in the particular order in which they're applied to the elect, but what I've put into your notes is the order that I'm going to present, 
And it comes from the modern theologian Robert L. Raymond. <clears throat> and you can see um, the order in which I have is election, effectual call, regeneration, repentance unto life, faith in Jesus Christ, justification, definitive sanctification, adoption, progressive sanctification, and perseverance in holiness. I went through that pretty quick. Don't worry, in, in future weeks, we're going to go through those one at a time, and we're going to see what each of those are. Now, as you look at your notes, you're going to see I numbered them in a certain way, and you're going to be asking, well, what is with this 1A and 1B and 2A and 2B grouping anyway? Seems like a complicated way to present a list, but it's for a reason. When the benefits of salvation accompanied by or accomplished by Christ are actually applied to us, it comes in a logical order. And that's the part of the numbering where you see one, two, three, four. But there are also benefits that are related to each other, associated with each other, so they can be grouped together to show that they're associated with each other. Now let's look for a minute at the list where it says 4A and 4B, for instance. 4A is progressive sanctification. We're being sanctified, right? Now that we're Christians, we're being sanctified. Progressive sanctification. 4B, perseverance and holiness. We persevere to the end. Those two blessings in the ordo salutis, they're numbered as four in the list because they happen after the rest of them. After we're saved, we go forward in that work for the rest of our lives. Being sanctified by the Holy Spirit, being made more and more Christ-like. And the associated blessing that's throughout our lives, God ensures that a truly saved person will persevere in faith and not lose their salvation. So we have 4A and 4B. They come after 1, 2, and 3. And 4A and 4B are associated with each other. Over our entire Christian lives, God causes us to be progressively more Christ-like and also causes us to persevere in the faith. But what's with step zero? Step zero is God's election of his people in eternity past. I labeled it step zero, and this kind of falls out of Robert Raymond's order that he presents. I added a step zero. And I labeled it step zero because while the other aspects of application of redemption, they happen in time and history, election happened in eternity past before the world was. So that's why the list in your notes looks the way it does. Overall, this list is called the Ordo, Ordo Salutis, the Order of Salvation, and a lot of theologians just call it the Ordo for, for short, so you might see that term Ordo just by itself sometimes. The Ordo is a logical way of looking at God's workmanship, God's new creation in the life of an elect person when God applies redemption to that person. The ordo is what happened to each of us as Christians and has continuing effects on us. So just to get kind of a look at the roadmap ahead as we're going to be going forward in as, as the weeks go on, what we're going to do is we're going to go through each of these aspects of what the ordo mean and why a particular step appears where it does in this order. But we're going to start with step zero, which is election. And that's the most controversial aspect of the application of redemption. Step zero is one of the great dividing lines between the Reformed understanding of redemption and the Arminian understanding of redemption. And since step zero, election, is such a rich subject, that's what we're going to be looking at for the rest of this session this evening. What is the doctrine of election? What this means is that God predestined some of mankind to eternal life. God made this determination, this decree in eternity past, before he created the world. God chose his people in eternity past by name. The number of individuals elected to eternal life, it's certain and it's definite. The number of the elect and the identity of the, of the elect cannot be changed. God's electing of his people was according to his eternal purpose, and God works it in history according to his plan. God did not elect individuals conditionally. 
This means that God didn't look down the corridors of time to see in advance some quality in Steve Burnett that, got, that guided God in his election of Steve Burnett to be saved. God's electing of individuals is unconditional. It's purely according to his purpose, according to the good pleasure of his will and out of his free grace and love. If God's election of individuals, if it were influenced by his foreknowledge of some good quality in me compared to other sinners, well then that quality that he foresaw in me would somehow be a cause of God's grace. Now this definition of election leads us back to that acronym TULIP. Remember that? TULIP. Remember that acronym? We looked at a couple of sessions back. Back in session 34, we looked at what many call the five points of Calvinism. And these five points came from a meeting of Reformed theologians called the Synod of Dort. They developed five points of theology in response to Arminians that outlined who the atonement was intended for, how the atonement is applied to God's people, and that acronym TULIP it just uses a handy memory tool to remember the five points. The T in TULIP stands for total depravity. And we covered total depravity back in session 22. It means that man cannot come to God on his own to be saved because since the fall of Adam, sin contaminates the totality of human existence. The next letter, U in TULIP, stands for unconditional election. And that's what we're looking at right now. In eternity past, before the world was, God chose or elected by name those who would be his people, saved by grace. The next letter in TULIP, L, stands for limited atonement. We covered that back in session 34. Limited atonement means that Christ went to the cross specifically for the elect, those individuals who the Father gave to the Son. The next letter, I, stands for irresistible grace. And the last letter, P, stands for perseverance of the saints. And we're going to get into irresistible grace and perseverance of the saints as we go further into the study on redemption. But tonight, we're looking at the letter U in TULIP, unconditional election. The unconditional part means there are no if-then conditions to God's election of individuals. There's no if-then Arminians will say, well, you know, God only elected the means of salvation, but he didn't elect individuals. Or they will say that, well, you know, if God elected individuals because he kind of looked down the corridor of time to see who would, by their own free will, accept the gospel with saving faith, that would be election with conditions. The condition is how people decide for themselves. Unconditional election well, it doesn't have conditions. God elects, and he decrees. How the benefits of salvation are applied is completely dependent on that decree. God's eternal decree does not depend on anything that God saw ahead of time. God didn't look ahead in time and see that I would respond with faith from pure free will. God didn't look ahead in time and see that I would perform good works. There were no conditions to his decree. I was as spiritually dead as anyone else. In fact, if you accept the T in the acronym TULIP, then you also have to accept the letter U. If you accept that sinful man, man who is in Adam, is totally depraved and cannot contribute to salvation, then you also have to accept that a particular person cannot simply choose to be saved by their unredeemed will. The sinner is helpless in his sinful, unredeemed state. If an individual is if he's characterized by total depravity, if he's to be saved at all, God must do the saving beginning to end. There can be no future conditions that God sees in me that somehow influence his election, his gracious choice. If God were influenced in his election by looking down the corridor of time and see that, well, with a certain amount of help, I'll be smart enough, moral enough, spiritual enough to have saving faith, and maybe I'm not really totally depraved after all. There's something good in me after all, and God saw that, and elected me as someone worth saving. There would be something in me that is less depraved than my unsaved next-door neighbor, so I'm not, you know, I'm not totally depraved after all. 
This is why if we accept the T in tulip, total depravity, we must also accept the next letter, U, unconditional election. If I am to be saved at all, God must do the work of electing me unconditionally and then applying that redemption. You know, most Christians in this country don't believe in the Reformed view of the atonement. Rather, the most believed view is Arminianism. Arminianism holds that if God gives enough grace to everyone equally and brings everyone to the one-yard line towards salvation by that equal grace, then individuals have some capability to drag themselves that one last yard to a touchdown under their own power. And I think Arminians hold to this for two reasons. First, we want to believe in absolute fairness. Fair would mean that everyone has exactly the same opportunity for salvation and that everyone has the equal ability to choose salvation by their own power. And second, we want to believe that we're not really as bad as all that. You know, I'm going to risk one of these pop culture references and hope that you all get it. And of course, if you know me, it's going to be either a Disney reference or a Star Wars reference. And I know that there's probably some people that are not really into Star Wars all that much. I know of one person here who isn't. It's going to be Star Wars this time. And in the Star Wars movies, there's a main villain, Darth Vader. He's a really bad man. But in the end, he's suddenly redeemed from bad to good because he still had a little bit of good in him all along. And he couldn't deny it any longer. In the end, he was able to redeem himself based on this little bit of good remaining. We want to believe that about ourselves. We don't want to accept that as sinners we were totally depraved. We want to believe that like Darth Vader, we still had a little glimmer of good in us, some ability to contribute to our own justification. That's why I accepted the gospel, and well, my unsaved next-door neighbor didn't. It comes down to pride. Pride. We don't really want to accept that we're as spiritually unable as all that, and that God must unconditionally elect us if we are to be saved. So let's continue looking at the doctrine of divine election. We'll turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, we'll read verses 3 to 6. In this section, Paul is giving praise to God for the blessings he's given to his people. And Paul names the blessings of heaven that have been poured out on us in superabundance. Or as the ESV translates it, God lavished the riches of his grace upon us. And when Paul describes all these superabundant blessings, we can see that they're all actions taken by God. We didn't ascend to heaven and take them for ourselves by our own initiative and power. And the fact that God elected his people by name in eternity past to lavish his love on them, that fact is woven throughout this section. I'll read from Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There's a vast scope of blessing, a great landscape of blessing that's in view here. And the step where all this begins is in verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Here we can see the plan of God from beginning to end. The beginning is that God chose us. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Step zero of the Ordo Salutis took place in eternity past before the foundation of the world. This election 
is the divine and mysterious action of God choosing his people by name, who in the course of time and history would have salvation applied to them. Because election, well, that's already taken place. It's immutable. I can't override the election of God by my own will. I don't have the power to frustrate the plan of God. I cannot cancel God's workmanship. And I cannot elect myself to be God's project. This election is an action of God alone. It cannot be changed. It is immutable. Verse 5 goes on and once again proclaims God's action in eternity past to elect his people. Paul says, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. The Greek word translated here as predestined, it's unmistakable in its meaning. Meaning, It means to predetermine. The Greek word is used five times in the New Testament. And in every case, it means that God took an action to predetermine events or the selecting of persons according to his plan. Verse 5 goes on and tells us that this predestination was according to the purpose of his will. God has purpose in his electing individuals. God's election was not random. God wasn't flipping coins or rolling dice when he elected you in eternity past. His choice was not arbitrary. There was divine purpose. We can see Paul's emphasis on God's divine purpose if we read further down, verses 9 to 12. Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In verse 9, we see the words, making known to us the mystery of of his will. God's plan had a mysterious aspect to it in the Old Testament. It's now revealed to us. God's will was according to his purpose. God's workmanship began with his purpose in salvation, leading to God to exercising his divine will according to his divine plan. There's no randomness in any of this. The individuals that God elected, they weren't selected arbitrarily. But there's another important point to make about the plan and purpose of God. Arminians claim that God's predestination, well, that's only God choosing the means of salvation. But he leaves the choice of accepting salvation, well, it's up to an individual's free will. The trouble is, that would introduce random, randomness. A divine plan, devised, devised according to divine wisdom, executed according to divine will, resulting in God's workmanship, that can't have randomness. God's plan does not rely on the randomness of self-selection. God chose his sheep by name in eternity past. And in case Paul's readers didn't get the point in the previous verses, it's here again in verse 11. It says that in time in history, when redemption is applied to us, we obtain an inheritance. But that application of redemption depends on what Paul writes next. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. There is a grand plan of God decreed by him in eternity past. A plan that carries out his purpose. Then in time and history that plan is carried out by Christ accomplishing redemption then the Holy Spirit applying redemption to the people of God. These people were elected by God in eternity past. The divine purpose and plan, start to finish, is of God. As verse 11 tells us, it is God working all things according to 
the counsel of his will. No one suggested the plan of salvation to God. God didn't ask anyone's opinion on the plan of salvation. And this is important to recognize. God didn't look down the corridor of time to see who would respond in faith, and that somehow informed the counsel of his will. In verse 11, we see a chain of words that proves it is God working these things start to finish. The people of God were predestined. They were predestined according to God's purpose. God's purpose leads then to God working all things. This divine working of all things is according to the counsel of his will. There is no randomness involved. God never arranged his plan or who would be his people by foreknowledge of what we would decide. There is difficulty in studying the doctrine of election or predestination. There is a fundamental mystery to predestination. God has revealed that he has predestined some to salvation and not others. But God has not revealed anything else about why some are included in God's flock and others are not. We know that God is not capricious or arbitrary. He didn't flip coins or roll dice to determine his decree. But we also know that there's no good quality in any of us that made us stand out in God's mind. We need to handle the doctrine of predestination and the truth of election with special care. The men, who, the men who met together to craft the Westminster Confession of Faith recognized that this doctrine could be abused when they wrote this into the confession. And I'll quote from the Westminster Confession of Faith. The doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care that men, attending the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereto, thereunto, may, from the certainty of their effectual vocation, be assured of their eternal election. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. The men who crafted the Westminster Confession of Faith, they stated the doctrine of predestination boldly. But they also cautioned that it is a doctrine that has to be handled with special prudence and care. And that's because we can abuse the doctrine. We can jump off of theological cliffs when we study predestination. And one of the cliffs we can fall off of when speaking of predestination is to speculate on why God decreed to save some and not others. Let's turn next to Romans chapter 11. We're going to see how we must not speculate on why God chose some and not others. We need to step back with humility, accept what God has revealed, and stop ourselves from speculating on what God has not revealed. We'll be in Romans chapter 11. I'll read verses 33 to 36. This passage comes in a section about the status of ethnic Israel and how, about how the Gentiles have been grafted into God's work of salvation. God had placed ethnic Israel under a partial hardening in order to graft in the Gentiles. And as Paul sums up how God has carried out the work of salvation, he cries out with this praise to the wisdom of God. And this praise is in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. There's a humility in beholding what God has revealed to us because we can't delve into the mystery. All we can do is wonder at God's wisdom. All we can finally do is what Paul does here in Romans. He speaks the truth of the doctrine, doesn't speculate into what God has not told us, and we step back in awe in how unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. 
Here's what John Calvin wrote about this passage in Romans. He said, If therefore we enter at any time on a discourse concerning the eternal counsels of God, we must always restrain both our language and manner of thinking, so that when we have soberly and within the limits of the word of God, our argument may finally end in an expression of astonishment. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, it warns us about the division between what God has revealed and what he has not revealed, and how we need to take care to react rightly to that division. Deuteronomy 29, 29, it says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us. The second way that we can abuse the doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination, is to think that we have license to sin. We need to handle the doctrine of predestination with care, because some people who lack spiritual maturity may think that because the truly saved, well, we're eternally secure, therefore they can think less of the seriousness of remaining sin in our lives. The result is that they may fail to hate their sin and instead tolerate unrighteousness in their lives. But the proper use of the doctrine of election should cause us to be diligent against sin. The letter of 2 Peter gives us a balanced response to the doctrine of election when we use it correctly. And I'll read from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 11. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now here, Peter is writing as shepherd of the sheep, warning Christians against false teachers who misused Paul's letters by saying that the liberty in Christ kind of gives us a license to sin. The false teachers basically said that, well, holiness is just not that important. And sanctification really isn't a concern. And Peter counters this by approaching the doctrine of election from two sides. First, let's look at verses 3 and 4. Peter strongly assures his readers, the sheep who have true faith, that they have all things that pertain to life and godliness. God's precious and very great promises have been granted to them. Then Peter addresses the doctrine of election from the other angle. Peter tells him that the False teachers are indeed wolves for teaching that sanctification is unimportant. He begins writing about sanctification by saying, for this very reason, in verse 5, for this very reason, it is because the saved were predestined to salvation, it is because he has granted such promises that we need to pay attention to God's purpose in making us Christ-like. We need to be committed to eagerness 
to the qualities in these next verses. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and agape love. But it's absolutely vital not to put the cart before the horse. We don't engage in eager desire for Christ-likeness in order to be justified before God. That's a gift of God's grace. Instead, sanctification, good works, are fruit and evidence of the life of God in us. They are fruit and evidence of the life of God in us. Then we see what's in verse 10. Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. False teachers may try to tell you that Christianity is a morality-free religion. True Christianity teaches that a person predestined and elected by God for eternal life after they're born again will bear fruit and evidence of the new birth over time. When we're diligent to practice the Christian moral virtues, we're being diligent to confirm our calling and election. I'm striving to demonstrate to myself and others what God has already confirmed for me in my election. So the doctrine of election must not result in us casting off virtue. In verse 10, Peter writes that if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. The word never in this verse in the Greek is what's called an emphatic negative. It's like a double negative. It's like saying you will never, ever fall. Because Christians are sheep named by the Father and given to the Son in eternity past, we now have the precious and very great promises. And we have an inner assurance of our election by the fruit and evidence of our sanctification. So when some people might misuse the doctrine of election to say that it encourages sin and lawlessness, we reply with the proper use of the doctrine. The proper use of the doctrine is that our election in eternity past gives us an eagerness to bear the fruit and evidence of salvation. What Peter is writing about in his letter is our inner assurance that we are truly among the elect. Our inner assurance. God needs for his people to have comfort and assurance. The Lord doesn't want us going through our lives torn by doubt that we're truly among the elect. That inner assurance comes in two ways. First, we're to look to the work of Christ. We're to look to Christ's obedience for us. We are to look to the cross. We are to look to the resurrection. We are to rest in these completed works of Christ. Then, and only then, afterwards, we look to an assurance that comes from seeing our own changed lives. Peter tells us that we're to make every effort to grow in Christian virtue. Peter wrote that if we pursue this virtue with diligence, we are actually being diligent to confirm our election. Now, this doesn't mean that God himself needs confirmation that he elected us. We don't somehow make God's election valid by our own diligence. We don't cast a deciding vote for God's election. God already knows who he's elected. I'll read from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19 to show this. It says, But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. The Lord knows those who are his. God himself does not need assurance that he has elected us. The Lord knows those who are his. Instead, when Peter writes about being diligent to confirm our election, he's writing about our own inner assurance that we are among the elect. So when we seek assurance of our salvation, assurance that we are indeed among the elect, we look to two things. One is objective and that's the primary source of assurance. And that is the work of Christ. And that we believe. And that we rest upon that work. That's the primary source of our assurance. That is where we look first. Because it's objective. Christ's work doesn't depend 
on my emotional state on any given day. Then the second way we look for internal assurance is in diligence in fleeing unrighteousness and growing in Christian virtue. This is the second means because it's a little more subjective. It's a little more variable. It's more subjective because it's tied to our, our own assessment of our progress in virtue. And because our progress, well, it's not the same from day to day. There's highs and lows. Our growth in Christ-likeness doesn't cause us to be elected. Instead, it provides increased assurance before ourselves and others that God indeed elected us in eternity past. Paul points to this assurance before others. I'll read next from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 to 7. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Since God had elected the true believers in Thessalonica in eternity past, obviously God knew them that they were elect. But Paul says this is how he Paul knew that these believers were truly among the elect. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. How did they know? Paul had assurance because he could see their full response of faith in the gospel and because he could see the fruit and evidence of their faith in their steadily growing Christian virtue. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. Now let's move on to the third way that the doctrine of predestination can be abused and why we must handle it with prudence. A third way that we can abuse the doctrine of predestination is to accuse God of being unjust. One of the most frequent objections to the clear teaching of Scripture about predestination is that it portrays God as unfair and that if God chooses to save some, he must give equal advantages to support everyone's free choice. Of course, this leads straight to Arminianism. It would mean that mankind, in his unsaved state, is not truly dead in sin. Instead, God provides, well, he provides sufficient grace to everyone in the whole human race to bring them to just the edge of salvation, the very verge of it. Then each person must make the choice to take the last step of faith by their own free will without any further assistance from God. God brings you to the edge of salvation, everyone to the edge of salvation, then you're on your own. You hear the gospel, now it's up to you. God kind of steps back. It's up to you now. Paul himself, when he addresses the doctrine of election in Romans chapter 9, answers this very question about whether predestination makes God unjust. If you'd like to follow along, I'll be in Romans chapter 9, verses 13 to 16. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God electing some to salvation and passing by the rest is not a matter of justice. It's a matter of mercy toward those whom God directs it. And God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. Paul answers the question, is there injustice on God's part? He answers, by no means or may it never be. Fourth way 
that the doctrine of election can be abused is when I, as a Christian, become anxious about it. I can ask, am I truly among the elect? I do believe the gospel, but how can I be assured that I'm really among the elect? And these questions from anxiety are the wrong questions to ask. We can't go back to eternity past and hear the divine decree or get a glance at this big list of the elect. Asking who is among the elect is trying to intrude into the secret things of God. Instead of asking with anxiety whether I'm truly elect, I should ask myself, do I believe the gospel? Is my hope in Christ, in his work, and in his work alone? Abusing the doctrine of predestination leads to anxiety, when the doctrine should actually lead to comfort. Here's what the Westminster Confession of Faith says about this doctrine. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. It should console us. The godly men who wrote the confession assured us that if the doctrine of predestination is rightly used with care, it brings abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. We don't receive assurance of our election by trying to pry open the secret decree of God. Instead, we gain assurance by asking, do I believe the gospel? As the hymn says, do I believe that my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness? I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. If we believe the gospel, we are saved. And sanctification will gradually follow as the fruit and evidence of salvation. This should cause us to rejoice. Not be filled with anxious thoughts about the secret decree of God. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verse 20, Jesus says this to the 72 disciples who had returned from their short-term mission with excitement that the demons were subject to them. Jesus said, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. If we handle the doctrine of predestination with care, not speculating on the decree of God in eternity past, we can rejoice in the doctrine. Because God chose us by name in eternity past, we can rejoice because the Father gave you by name to the Son in eternity past. You can rejoice. Now, although we're to study the doctrine of predestination with special care, we are still to study it and declare it. Now, the primary reason to study and declare the doctrine of predestination of election is for the same reason we study and declare other doctrine, because it's true and part of the whole counsel of God. But beyond that, there's several benefits to properly studying and teaching and believing this important doctrine. First, the doctrine of predestination of election convinces us that we are saved completely apart from our own works or merit. Our salvation is completely God's work. It must be God's work because God specifically chose us by name before the world was. God didn't elect just the means of our salvation, but he elected those who would be saved by name. If God had elected only the means of salvation, but then left it up to us whether we'd be saved, then we could take some credit for ourselves. If God did not elect me in eternity past and only elected the method of my salvation, then why am I saved and not my unsaved next door neighbor? Must be because I'm a little more spiritual, a little smarter, maybe a little better morally. But if I'm saved because God elected me by name, that brings humility. I can only stand back in awe and holy fear that God had my name in mind before the world was, and I don't know why, other than I was no more worthy than my neighbor. We looked at Romans chapter 9 a few minutes ago, but I want to revisit it. It's a rich source of revelation on God's election of individuals. In Romans chapter 9, and we'll read verses 14 to 16, 
Paul is relating how God chose Jacob over Esau to receive participation in the covenant. Actually, I'll read starting in uh, Romans 9, verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, so that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. By the standards of the culture, Esau should have been the one to inherit the promises of the covenant. Although Jacob and Esau were twins, Esau had been born just before Jacob. It was expected that the older son would be preeminent. But Rebekah had been told in advance that the older would serve the younger, which by the standards of the culture, that shouldn't have happened. Then in verse 13, God simply reveals his authority to elect one and not elect another. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Paul proves that God's election of Jacob was unconditional. God's decree wasn't based on anything the two of them did. God gave his decree before they were born. Verses 11 and 12 tell us that at the time of God's revealing his electing decree, they were not yet born, and therefore neither could have done anything to merit or demerit God's election. Then Paul anticipates the shocked reaction of someone who would hear this. Is there injustice on God's part? Paul says, by no means. If Paul had taken the Arminian viewpoint, he could have defended God's justice or fairness by, well, he could have said that God looked down the corridor of time and saw that Jacob would choose to be a man of faith, and Esau wouldn't. But Paul didn't give that defense. The answer Paul gives is simple. Verse 15 tells us that God himself said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. This is a quote from Exodus chapter 33, verse 19. When the Lord is passing by Moses, showing a small part of his glory to Moses and proclaiming his own name, our only response can be to close our mouths and not speak of fairness. This is a question of sovereign mercy, not fairness. God simply proclaims that it's part of his sovereignty, part of his nature, part of his very name, to have unconstrained ability to choose according to his sovereign will. Finally, Paul seals the argument in verse 16. God electing any one of us rather than our unsaved next-door neighbor has nothing to do with our own native ability or our personal work or our earthly advantage or circumstances. The verse states, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. It depends on God, who has revealed his mercy, and he's revealed it in sovereign election. The second benefit of teaching the doctrine of election is that it brings comfort to believers. The salvation of you, of you personally, was so important to God that he preordained you by name to be saved and how he would bring you to salvation. Once again, let's be encouraged by Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30. This is the passage that introduced the Ordo Salutis. And we can see that predestination begins a series of divine actions that describe God's workmanship in each of us. Romans 8, beginning in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. 
because you belong to Christ. The Father predestined you to this. The Father gave you to the Son in eternity past as one of Christ's sheep. All the divine actions of the Ordo Salutis show the importance of the plan of salvation. God predestined you by name to be his workmanship, and that should bring comfort in a world that thinks that unimportant things are critical and what is truly important is trivial. And third, the doctrine of predestination brings us comfort in trials. Comfort in trials. Since you were chosen by God, by name, you were one of Christ's sheep. And Christ is interceding for you. Your trials are meant by, in God's grace to refine you, to further God's workmanship, of which you are a part. The non-elect, you know what? They go through tough times too. But they have no eternal purpose that they can assign to their suffering. And fourth, the doctrine of predestination assures us that the church will always exist. The church cannot fail because God elected individuals in eternity past to be in the church. The world will not end and the final day will not occur until the last of the elect are safely in the body of Christ. Because the Father elected all of those who will be saved in eternity past that election is certain to result in their salvation because the Father has given the elect to the Son as his bride. The church most certainly will exist. Fifth, the doctrine of predestination serves to warn the world since, as Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two fourteen, many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. The gospel goes out today as an offer to all. Many hear this general call of the gospel, but only those who are of the elect will respond with the proper response. This division between the many who are called and the few that are chosen to respond, that's a somber warning to the world. They may laugh at the gospel or hate the gospel, but the gospel is not a trivial matter. The gospel is a summons by the king of kings. The fact that only the elect respond in the correct manner is a warning. This distinction between the many and the few shows that God will do a weeding process at the last day between those he, who he predestined to glory and those he did not. The doctrine of predestination shows that salvation is God's work, not the work of man. It is a warning to the world that all of their efforts outside of Christ to earn salvation themselves will come to ruin. So, divine election is what I'm calling step zero of the Ordo Salutis, the order of salvation. As we continue in the upcoming sessions, we're going to look at the other steps in the Ordo, which describe how redemption is applied to us. And I'm going to wrap up tonight with a quote from Spurgeon that's tied to election and the fact that each of you as Christians, were elected by the Father and given by the Father to the Son. The Spurgeon said, The Father gave to the Son then a number, I believe it was a number that no man can number, a number far beyond the bounds of our thought, but he did give a certain number whom he himself had chosen from before the foundation of the world. And these became the property of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were put under a different government, being placed under the mediatorial sway of the Son of God, they became disciples, not by their own natural inclination, but by his gracious calling. They became Christ's flock, he, their shepherd. They were to become Christ's body. He was to be the head. In due time, they were to be Christ's bride. He was to be the husband. They were to be Christ's brethren, and they were to be conformed to him, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren.